really good to see you. It's good and, to see you too. And thanks for sparing the time to come on my humble, you know, new project. Oh, great. Um, and I sent you a, I sent you some questions um, in the email a couple uh, a couple of days ago. Yeah, I like the questions. Um, I don't have them in front of me right now. I should have printed okay. them out, but yeah, uh, yeah, feel free to just ask because I like them. Yeah, great. Well, feel free to just talk as well. Okay. And we'll just see how it goes. Um, so sure. you're in you're in San Francisco. Yep. Yeah, um, I'm in San Francisco. I moved here 40 years ago. Um, in part because I was kind of a young hippie and uh, I moved to the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood where hippies were invented in the mid 60s. And um, the hippies that are here now are, you know, not doing so well usually. They're either really old or burned out or they're really young and, you know, living on the street. But um, I still live in the same neighborhood that I've lived in for 40 years. I live with my husband, Keith Carricker, who is a uh, high school science teacher. We've been together for 25 years. We're legally married. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, San Francisco is unfortunately becoming a, uh, an almost impossibly expensive place to live. But we're, we're hanging on by rent control. So, uh, you know, I'll never, unfortunately, sadly, I'll never be able to afford to buy a house here. Uh, you know, people think, you know, it's like my book, Neurotribes, became a bestseller. People hear the word bestseller and they think, oh, my God, he must be rich. You know, yeah. you, uh, you would, uh, you know, I make so much less money than most of my neighbors who work in technology. Um, well, I'm sorry I bought mine secondhand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 no worries. It's all right. No problem. There you go. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, yeah, I was going to ask you a couple of things about hippie kind of, it comes around, keeps coming around, but obviously yeah. it's like a new, like fashions, I suppose, yeah. but we probably haven't got time to go into all that. But it's great yeah, to know that you're a dead fan. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but, great. Yeah, I'm a huge Grateful Dead fan. And and I've, uh, I mean, I saw probably somewhere between 250 and 300 shows. Wow. Uh, of course, in my life. And I uh, wrote a book uh, with a, another writer named David Shank in 1993 called Skeleton Key, A Dictionary for Deadheads. Okay. And then uh, produced a box set for them with yeah. a couple of other deadheads called So Many Roads. And yeah. uh, so, so that's kind of my, it's my special interest, one might say. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, what, back in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, I was pulled towards Gong and Hawkeye. Oh, yeah. Oh, they're awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, David Allen, he stayed with me a couple of times um, oh, how cool. a few years ago before he passed. Um, wow. That was very, very special since being into them since I was a kid, you know. So. Oh, that's fantastic. And I actually saw Hawkwind when I was in high school. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Over there. Yeah, I, think, I think one of their fa uh, famous albums had just come out or something. Yeah. But, um, yeah, David Allen, it, it struck me. I'm not surprised to hear that someone on the autism spectrum is sort of attracted to their music because I feel like it's kind of neurodivergent. Gong is sort of neurodivergent music in a way. Very, very. Um, yeah. Okay. So I can sense us going off down a track already. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe bringing us back a little bit. Um, um, I was, you, you, before we, before we started recording, Ash, about the photo and you said you were a yeah. teaching assistant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you asked me about the photographs in the background. 
um, that one in the middle with the white uh, boundaries. Um, yeah, that was taken in the mid eighties. Um, I was Allen Ginsberg's student in the late seventies when I was a teenager and then his teaching assistant in the mid eighties. Yeah. Uh, um, and he was uh, a very big influence on me. Brilliant. In fact, I, I wrote a piece for the guardian uh, that can be searched if you search for, okay. you know, like Silberman Ginsburg hero yep. or whatever. Yep. Um, yep. It tells you some of the things that I learned from him. I think, I, he, might have, I, think yeah. I might have seen a, a link on, on the wiki page to it. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. The, Oh, I read. I read on Carol. I think that he was connected to Kerouac, wasn't he? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and um, William Burroughs. Oh yeah. Along with the with the cut-ups and the psychic TV and and that yeah. there was that um, legacy for me. Yeah. But I, I was on. Um, I was browsing around on TV the other day and I came across um, uh, Jack Kerouac's poems. Oh uh, wow! Nice. With him him reciting them to me. Oh, that's great. Yeah. It's, it's a CD called Poetry for the Beat Generation, and that was really sent me off into a different space for, for the That's, evening. That was lovely. Yeah. Anyway. Um, Can I ask you, Johnny, sure. how old were you when you were diagnosed? Okay, um, that was um, in 2014. I'm Great. 53 now, so it's 48. Wow. So when you got the diagnosis, yeah. how, how did it feel? Did it feel like a good thing or a problematic thing or how did it yeah. feel to finally get a diagnosis? Well, when I sat in that, in that dim room um, that I'd sat in for about five or six hours altogether being interviewed by the neurologist and, and she told me um, there was just like, there was nothing there. And, and she said, and then she had to prompt me to to actually feel my to feel the emotion because oh, I didn't know which emotion to to tap into. And she went, "Oh, that's interesting." Some people have, make a big sigh of relief, and some people might have a one or two tears. And suddenly, I just went, "You know, wow. yeah, yeah." I don't know what it was, yeah, but relief or or shock or whatever. I'm not quite sure. It's a mixture. Yeah, but. but yeah, it's been it, afterwards since then. I suppose for a couple of years it went up and down, up and down. And it's kind of you know they taught me to modulate um, energy and and emotions, you know, in yeah. in, in post diagnostic support, which is really good here. Um, oh, the NHS thing. Great. Um, and um, and so it's like kind of leveled out a lot. But one thing I've I've also learned is is that all the qigong and stuff that I did all my life is oh you know, how great it's really helped so, yeah so I've got a you know I've got that um, the benefit of of all of that yoga when I was when I was a teenager and then qigong years of it and I still do it now and 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 I was I interviewed um, Holly Bridges in Australia she's like the um, polyvagal nerve works mm. with autistic people in that sense and she says it's called vagal toning so yeah mm. it makes sense to me that's great yeah Thanks. anyway um i can talk a lot about me i want to find yeah. out a little bit sure. more about you Thanks sure. for asking anyway sure um, so so okay so you're coming over to the uk in, in a month's time what else are you up to and um what's been going on recently with regards to the book and I'm wondering if there might be an update. Is that is that a no? There's not going to be an update to the book. Um, I will tell. I will. This is one of the first times I've ever said this in public, but 
I'm actually working on a new book. It's not about autism though. Um, and I, I, I don't want to say yet exactly what it's about, but it'll be news in probably uh, a couple of weeks or so. But um, it's, it is another medical history and it's a history of another community that has faced a lot of stigma and, and secrecy. Um, okay. Although in some ways it's, it's, um, it's, it's a very intense story. It's not about a cognitive disability. It's about it's about a physical disorder um, that's life threatening, actually. Right. Um, and so one of the things, one of the reasons I'm coming to England really for for two reasons. Yeah. One is that um, when I was uh, immediately after the my book Neurotribes was published, yeah. I was kind of on this mad book tour, and you know, rushing around and having to show up at all these places. And I, I was not always able to speak to smaller, uh, particularly autistic-run communities and organizations. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Because in a way, I was working for the Publisher Speakers Bureau, really. Uh, and I, I still am working for them. But it just so happened that I had two uh, invitations from hosts in Europe who would partially pay for my airfare to go over. And so I thought, well, it would be nice if I use that to speak to smaller organizations, particularly autistic-run organizations like um, Autistic UK, um, where I wouldn't have been able to before. And, you know, they couldn't afford to fly me out, you know. Yeah. So yeah. especially because uh, I'm somewhat disabled myself in that I have a, um, a condition, a, a circulatory condition called chronic venous insufficiency. So I actually can't fly economy. I have to fly either economy plus or business class on the orders of my doctor. He gets very yeah. angry at me when I fly economy because yeah. you can actually die in the area or in the air. So, oh. I, so I thought, well, if I have to go to Europe anyway and someone's yeah. paying for most of it, yeah. not all of it actually, but most of it, um, then I should use that time to sort of, pay, you know, in a sense, uh, express my gratitude okay. to small organizations, particularly organizations of autistic people like Autistic UK. Um, I'm, I'm speaking, I'm doing a benefit for them in Manchester. Uh, and then uh, Melissa, your friend, asked me to be part of the Festival of Debate. She, she's on the spectrum. And uh, so I just thought it would be a nice way to sort of make community yeah. with uh, autistic people. And... Um, the other thing I'm doing, though, is I'm also interviewing a, a leading expert on the subject of the next book. So I'm also taking a couple of days to uh, go to a small town in the north of England to talk to. He's basically the world's leading historian on the subject that I'm writing about. So that so that's why I'm coming to the UK. I'm actually coming twice. Uh, I'm going to be at. Uh, well, I don't have all the dates in front of me, but um, I'm going to be launching a new website very soon. And it will have all the dates, but I'm going to be at like the Bradford Liter Literature Festival and the Festival of Debates and the Benefit for Autistic UK and um, a few other hopefully fun events. And the book um, will will be announced before you come to these. I think so. I think That's, so. It sounds like a book tour to me. Uh, well, not yet because I, in the, it's not nearly written. Like I haven't written a page of it. Okay. Yet, you know, so it's that's going to be my book tour for this book is going to be a couple of years from now.
Okay, okay, great. Okay, yeah. brilliant. All right, well, we'll look forward to seeing you uh, in a time in, in the UK. Um, the thing about um, naming autism to me has always felt felt a little bit uncomfortable and obviously it goes to to the identity thing and, and the stigma massive stigma in society um i'm just wondering if you've got any any thoughts on that and and also how can we get around the fact that we have to fight these misconceptions and would it be better in your opinion to focus more on strengths and is it i know it's a big broad question but so no, it's a, it's a huge but completely fascinating question that I actually love talking about. Right. I mean, the part of the problem is there is nothing called autism in the objective world. I'm so like, glad you said that. <laughs> you know, it's a social construction. Yeah. And uh, that's not to say that uh, it's not an actual disability and that there aren't yeah. very distinctive traits that that um, mark the, you know, the presence of the syndrome. But it's not a thing out there like uh, some disease vectors or a physical disability or something. Yeah. You can't point to something and say, okay, if the, you can't, there are no, for instance, um, biological uh, biomarkers yeah. for autism. It's made on the basis of subjective clinical observation. Yeah. So whenever anything is based on subjective clinical observation, that means the whole society is in the room in the head of the therapist who is making that observation. And so, you know, some people say like, you know, oh my God, the medical model of autism is so terrible. Yes, it is. And it's a deficit-based model, but it's really important to remember there was nothing else but the medical model of autism until, uh, you know, really Temple Grandin started uh, giving public talks about yeah. how her autism aided her in her job. And until people like Jim Sinclair uh, started talking about autism pride and until people like N Judy Singer started talking about neurodiversity. So these were all represent um, what uh, British artist and, and neurodivergent John Adams calls hashtag autistic culture shift. Yeah. And so um, now an alternate strengths based model of autism has been proposed by autistic people. And I think it's really important to listen to them. And you know that one of the te most terrible things about autism history that I talked a lot about in my book yeah. is that the guy who became famous as the world's leading authority on autism for most of the 20th century, unchallenged really, was Leo Connor at Johns Hopkins Hospital. And he did some good things and he did some bad things. And one of the really bad things that he did was that he interpreted artistic strengths as signs of pathology. For instance, one of his patients could distinguish between the composers of 18 symphonies after only hearing a few bars of music before he turned two. So instead of saying, oh my God, that's amazing. This two-year-old kid can tell Beethoven Mozart. You know, what Leo said was, the kid is obviously so starved for love because his parents are refrigerator parents, that the kid is trying to impress them by acting as if he cares about this classical music. What two-year-old could possibly care about this? This is a sign of mental illness. That was terrible. So Leo Connor actually interpreted strengths 
as pathology. Yeah. And we really, like the shadow of that still looms large over the community. And I think yeah. that when some people say that, oh, neurodiversity goes too far, it's always talking about gifts and strengths. Well, we have a long way to go to correct for the 20th century when everything about autism was about deficits, impairments, uh, and, and children only. You know, adults could not get a diagnosis. M most people have no idea that autistic adults could not get a diagnosis until the if late 80s, if you were lucky and living in England where Lorna Wing was, or early 90s if you were living anywhere else. Yeah. Um, and in fact, uh, I, I'll, I know I'm monologuing here. I'll shut up shortly. But, okay. Um, okay, okay. I spoke to a, a pioneering autism researcher named Ed Ritvo, who was at the University of California in Los Angeles. And he wrote the very first paper on autistic adults who got married, had jobs, and had kids in the late 80s, like people don't realize how recent that is, yeah. and he was mocked by his colleagues for suggesting that such a thing could happen, that autistic children could grow up, get married, have jobs, and have kids. Yeah. They said, oh, this is ridiculous. This doesn't yeah. happen. That was the 80s. That's not yeah. that long ago. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I'm aware that I think it's 91 was the first use of Asperger in, in the UK. Yeah, yeah. I know what I was doing. I was on the road on my way to Mecca doing the doing the doing the Hajj. Uh, oh, amazing! <laughs> yeah, I, wow. I mean that was what was part of my part of my history. I just got just dove straight into Sufism, looking for oh, wow. looking for some kind of framework to hold me together in this society. You know, twenty yeah. years of that, but I just think you know that 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 wasn't Asperger's wasn't even um, used until '91. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is way out of my depth, but did you ever think about a parallel between, uh, I think it's Mevlevi spinning and stimming? Yeah, I did. Yeah. That hit me about a year ago. And oh, I wow. Got, I got into spinning a bit for a bit. Oh, how cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I would definitely say that that's, that's uh, supreme stimming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, I mean, the whole chanting and repetition and, and rocking as part of you know, it's not oh, just Sufism. It's it's yeah. There's there's yeah, a lot. Yeah, Orthodox Jews do this. It's called davening. If that's not stimming, nothing is. They yeah. rock back and forth while they're playing. Oh, praying. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um. So wow. So what are we gonna do? What? How are we gonna? <laughs> we just want no, the culture to one, shift. Well, one thing that would be nice is that um. There is so much, and I say this very, not so much critically, but sadly, really. There's so much infighting in the autism community. There's fighting between self-advocates and parents, between um, clinicians and everyone else, yeah. between, uh, between parents. Um, there are so many sort of red lines yeah. uh, within the larger autism community including autistic people and non-autistic people. And everyone is constantly sniping at each other, mm. so much so that nearly every, oh, nearly every one of my autistic friends has had to take time out from social media yeah. because they get so attacked, sometimes by other autistic people. 
know? I know, I know, Steve. I, I, I have this sense that I'm, I'm kind of waiting for it. I see it, but it, I recoil very quickly because I'm easily hurt. But yeah. then, then I'm thinking, you know, there's so much injustice and oppression and cruelty, and, and you know, if you, if, if we think about the most cruel things that's happening, the, you know, the electronic stuff and the electric shock stuff, and, yeah, and, and ABA and the rest of it, and, and instantly. This is why I pulled out of doing the what so well you'll be doing your talk, I think, in the in the university where the autism centre is, where I did my started my masters in autism. Um I pulled out last year because I I pulled out with the PG cert because that was enough. There was there was too much kind of personal involvement for me invested in what I could see was gonna be like a big mushroom of horror, basically, which your book you worked with. You know that the legacy of of horror and oppression and mm-hmm. and ignorance, mm-hmm. and th- and then on the other side we've got, as you were saying earlier about about savant savants and and you see it it pops up maybe you might get a program about an autistic savant, and then it's almost as though society just scratching its head. Well, we we don't know what to do with that. It's too weird. Yeah, you know, so it just brushes it aside as something just weird. But I'm thinking, my God, why don't we harness this these right. people? <laughs> Why don't we yeah, look for more of them? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, reading your uh, paper on autism dialogues, it seemed like exactly the sort of steps that need to be taken, because we really need to have dialogues between sub-communities within the autism yeah. community. Um, yeah. Because I really do think that once the noise kind of dies down, that uh, many different wings of the community have c- the common goal of improving service delivery, respecting autistic people, um, giving everyone in society a chance to thrive, giving people who need the most support in society a chance to feel safe and secure in their lives and engaged in their communities. You know, one of the things I kept hearing from parents as I was interviewing them for my book was we're afraid to die because we don't know what's going to happen to our son or daughter once we're no longer around yeah. to help them. That's a terrible thing. And, it's, uh, you know, it's not, it's um, not a great way to live. Right. It's not. And, you know, so, you know, there are all these kind of like fake arguments that really uh, corrode the autism community. Like, well, then there should be a cure. You know, the answer to that is a cure. Well, you know, no, there is no such thing as a cure for autism. Um, it, you know, it, it it's, you know, I'm gay. There's no cure for that either. Uh, you know, when I first came out uh, in high school, homosexuality was in the DSM. And yeah. my parents yeah. sent me to a therapist to get cured. And yeah. it didn't work, you know. And so autism is a pervasive condition that involves every system in the body and really um, is a core part of someone's identity. And so to have arguments about something that doesn't even exist, you know, and the problem with focusing on words like cure is that it misallocates very scarce research funding towards that goal. So I'll give you a very concrete example. Mm -hmm. Uh, In America, in the last couple of years, 32% or so in the 30s of uh, autism research has been dedicated to genetic research. Mm. You know, some people say, oh, that's eugenics. 
I think that's going a bit too far. I do think there are useful things that can be learned from genetic research on autism, but only 2% of the research outlay has been going towards lifespan issues. In other words, how to support and accommodate autistic people across the entire lifespan so that they have a better chance at having a happy and healthy life. Yeah. That is a scandal. You know, the fact that 30-something percent is going to genetics, academic geneticists, really. Not that they're bad people, you know. But as long as, you know, as long as we're virtually completely ignoring autistic adulthood, that's a scandal. And I, I think that what everyone should be doing, no matter what side of, you know, the word neurodiversity they think they're on, is supporting more research for conditions that affect all autistic people, like anxiety, like epilepsy. Mm. I mean, virtually every autistic person I know um, suffers from quite severe anxiety. Uh, and it's not hard to see in social uh, media because you see people really stressing out. And we don't even know how anti-anxiety meds function in the autistic brain because that research has never been done. Uh, epilepsy is one of the leading causes of death. In fact, I believe it's the leading cause of death for autistic adults with intellectual disability. We don't know how epilepsy meds work in the autistic brain. This is what we've been ignoring while arguing about words like vaccines and cures. Yeah, yeah, and I suppose I'm, I'm on the other side. I'm, I'm thinking. Well, we're not going to solve the problems in society during our lifetime, right? It's never going to be perfect. This isn't. This is. This is Earth. It's not paradise. Right. Right. (laughs) We can make. We can fight our corner, and do our bit, and make our life, you know, and and help others. And I heard a lovely phrase the other day. It was happiness is so mysterious. It doesn't matter whether it's yours or somebody else's. Wow, that is a good. That is good. Yeah, that's good. And the other thing is, you know, I do want to say something hopeful, okay? You know, I was just talking about homosexuality being in the DSM, my parents sending me to a therapist for the cure. You know, I used to get beaten up all the time when I was in high school for being gay. Okay, look at this, kids. It's a wedding ring. Yeah, man. I, I am a happily married gay man. That would have been completely, you know, incomprehensible. Uh, high school like I never would have you know if a genie had appeared and said like well what can we do (laughs) I would never have dared to say legalize gay marriage you know but uh, that happened in one lifetime mine and so that is a tremendous culture shift and I think that we're on the road to having a similar uh, culture shift with autism and this is the this is the human fight, isn't it? We have to try and make the world a better place. That's what that's what yeah. we're all trying to do. And it's, yeah. I, the thing that drove me to to dialogue was partly after my diagnosis. I, I it was the fragmentation of everything that I've yeah. always felt. I've always felt like I'm I'm a like a a mirror that gets shattered. It's it's a it's a bit of a sooth thing actually. The broken oh. mirror gets shattered into a million pieces, and then. You're just one of them, but you're reflecting everything, but you don't feel part of it all. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so in my idea of Judaism, there's a in Kabbalah, there's a concept of the shards, like we're all shards of God, sort of. Yeah, you know? that kind of thing. Yeah. So 
I've, you know, obviously I think some of that's 20 years of, of, of practicing mystical stuff and yeah. has gone into the, the, the idea for autism dialogue to bring that's together true. all these different perspectives. All I could see was conflicting ideologies. The first thing they taught us on the, on the uh, masters um, that, that how opposite, how disparate and, and, an argumentative as we can see that everything is to do with autism and then yeah. i sort of think about well the definition of of autism is the self so maybe it's a it's a you know my brain's kind of going crazy just thinking about well what is this crisis of the self then is yeah. it selfism you know yeah, yeah. but then yeah. you know so my idea yeah. was to try and dissolve that fragmentation that's yeah that's yeah well part of it is that you know in a way i think that psychiatry in the 20th century was unified around an idea that now seems completely absurd, which is that there is one type of healthy human mind. There isn't, no you know, there, there's neurodiversity. Yeah. There are many different types of healthy human minds. And um, it has always been such, and it's not just autism. You know, there people with dys dyslexia have strengths, people with ADHD have strengths. Yeah. and these different types of minds got tagged with diagnoses because in a way it was the job of psychiatry to look out for different types of minds. But now we understand that actually that diversity makes society a richer, uh, more engaged, more compassionate, more resilient place. Yeah. But that idea that there's only one type of healthy human mind still hangs out in the background when we talk about conditions like autism. Yeah, that's uh, we're coming to the end of the of, of our time now. But you know, I I when I went to see my GP a couple of years ago, and I said I was trying to explain uh, about the social model of disability, and he he didn't even know what it was. And that's you know, a general practitioner in charge of hundreds of people's yeah. well-being. Yeah, exactly. So, that's terrible. There's a lot of education to be done. I mean, that's really why when I was about halfway through my book. Which, by the way, the whole time I was writing it, I thought no one would like it. I thought I was going to get, I thought I was going to be like flayed and tortured, you know, and my career was over. Okay. But when I was about halfway through, um, I thought I have got to finish writing this book so no one else ever has to go through this, you know, yeah, so, so that people can get the benefit of the of the kind of lonely journey that I took for several years. Brilliant. Excellent sacrifice, Steve. Thank you for it. Uh, on, yeah. Um, thank you. Thanks for your time. And uh, yeah, thank yeah, you. I think I've only got down about two questions out of a list of about 10, but maybe another time. And we, yeah, perhaps we can talk about them over tea in Sheffield or something. Uh, sounds good. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Take care. All right, Johnny. Thank you so much. Have Take a care. Day. Cheers. You bye. Too. Bye-bye.